Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 14th of February 2022 and this is episode 242. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian and author Frances Hurd about her research into the impact war had on a number of veterans who returned from the battlefields. Frances spoke to me from her home in West Sussex. Francis, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the legacy of war upon servicemen returning to civilian life after the armistice? Well, um, I've got a PhD in history and I've worked in publishing and heritage, but I'm now doing historical research full time, focusing on great war topics. I've got a long term project exploring the lives of 10 Sandhurst cadets who all attended the first wartime course there. Um, and I followed their lives before, during and after the conflict. But in the case of those who died, uh, of what happened to their families as well. Some of my subjects who survived the war, however, were clearly profoundly affected by it, even though they weren't um, physically injured. Um, and from that, I stumbled across a couple of other cases. And um, I've become very interested in cases where families use a phrase like changed men. They specifically feel that the man who went to war is not the same as the man who came back from the war. And these personality alterations were very hard for them to cope with and difficult for them to understand. I mean, it's very difficult for families nowadays. And then when you re people really had very little knowledge about PTSD, um, it must have been incredibly difficult. Um, obviously, um, I also realised that there were parallels with studies of veterans more recent um, conflicts who show symptoms for what we now recognise as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So talking in sort of sort of very general terms, what is the impact or what, what impact can the experience of war have on service personnel who return to civilian life after seeing active service? Well, I, I, I'd like to use a quote here from the author Hugh McManus, who um, actually wrote a study about um, PTSD amongst recent veterans in, um, and is himself a Falklands veteran. And what he says is, quote, war is the most traumatic life event that any human can experience, a damaging combination of danger, uncertainty and horror, unquote. However, I would just like to add to that, that different men and women, of course, nowadays do react differently to the same stress. They may be serving in the, in the same battalion, in the same unit. And yet the experiences that one man goes through nearly breaks him whereas his friend will find it tough, but he won't necessarily show PTSD symptoms. It does vary very much. And also it's important that we consider the wider impact that a veteran's war experience can have on their loved ones and the wider society. What can the general sort of impacts be for, for families and friends of, of soldiers returning from, from war? Well, um, one thing is that obviously when you are actually in a combat situation, servicemen need to be constantly alert and to react really quickly to unexpected sounds or events. Um, and that's great. That's what they need to do in order to um, be able to spring immediately into combat um, or to react to some form of attack. 
Um, however, they, this can become so ingrained that it develops into a mental condition called hypervigilance, where they cannot stop reacting quickly and aggressively to loud noises or other stimuli. And obviously, this can be highly inappropriate in a domestic setting. Um, this isn't a First World War case, but um, somebody told me about their grandfather who had fought in Burma, and he became absolutely convinced that the noises of his grandson upstairs playing in his in his cot uh, was in fact the sound of the Japanese creeping up on him. You know, very tragic. Um, just terror. He just was convinced that that's what was happening. Um, they another PTSD symptom is um, men become they accustomed to dealing with problems aggressively. Again, naturally, you do need to deal with most problems aggressively when you're in when you're in combat zone, and they lose their temper easily. Um, and while serving, they may have used alcohol to help them sleep or to numb inhibitions. A lot of work, of course, has been done on alcohol abuse with current veterans. And of course, they can become addicted and just be using it too much at home. Similarly, they may use um, sex um, with prostitutes um, and other uh, contacts who they make in a combat situation as a form of escape and release. And then when they get back home, they find it difficult to adjust to having a very different sort of relationship with their regular partner. So let's turn to the Great War. Is it possible to gauge the number of return veterans who were affected by sort of mental trauma or combat stress, as it, 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 it is called today? Um, well, a study of um, UK veterans in 2018, which was published in the British Journal of Psychiatry, um, said that the rate of diagnosed PTSD is 17% amongst those who've seen combat as against 5% of the general population. Um, but so that gives you some idea it could be it could have been something like that percentage amongst Great War veterans. But very important point I like to stress here, PTSD is not the same as shell shock, which quite often people think it is. During the Great, Great War, more than 55,000 men were given pensions for having shell shock. And i.e. it was recognised by medical personnel at the time that they had been mentally affected by their experiences. Um, however, at the time, um, shell shock was identified by physical symptoms um, rather than the sort of aggression and other things I've mentioned just now. So it would be things like mutism, um, involuntary twitching, um, perhaps temporary blindness, um, I'm sure that uh, everybody listening to this will have seen some of the famous shell shock videos and photographs, particularly those taken at Netley Hospital. None of the three men I'll discuss today were identified as shell shock sufferers, but their behaviour um, is very similar. The symptoms they show is very similar to that of PTSD sufferers today. And, and in all three cases, um, the important reason why I've included them together is because their families saw, as I mentioned earlier, that the man concerned had changed from his pre-war personality. Um, it's particularly important when thinking about the 1920s, because this was an era when quite a high level of domestic abuse was considered to be pretty normal and something that, um, you know, was even perhaps a little bit humorous, the sort of idea of um, you know, you give her a slap on the bottom and she comes after you with a rolling pin. And it's important to have this family testimony that the man had changed and that his behaviour was now frightening and hard to deal with. 
So your research has looked at the lives of several com combatants returning from the trenches and the impact that war had on them and their loved ones. I understand that the first individual that you looked at was a guy called Charles Ball. Can you tell us about him? So Charles was born in 1887. Um, he joined the Gloucester Police in 1907. And before joining the police, it's worth noting that he'd been a member of the Duke, Duke of um, Beaufort's own pretty well private army, the Gloucester Hussars. So he was very proud of that, very proud of his horsemanship. Before the war, Charles was described uh, by the family as being charming, conscientious and interested in poetry, and he never drank to excess. He got married in 1913, had three children by 1916. In May 1915, the Gloucester police, um, this was when policy had changed on policemen joining up, were urged to join up. And out of 108 volunteers, 87 were accepted, one of whom was Charles. He rejoined the Gloucester Hussars and later became part of the Gloucester Regiment as a mounted um, policeman. Um, he went out to France in January 1917 and in May that year took part in the Battle of Fresnoy. There were 16 casualties and Charles was shot through his right hand. Now this meant, of course, he couldn't use his rifle efficiently. And after he'd come out of hospital, um, he was transferred to the 4th, 5th Lancashire Fusiliers Reserve Battalion and um, he was you know obviously no longer fit for frontline service he was very humiliated by this and he hated in particular he didn't want to be part of some alien lancashire regiment he wanted to be part of the gloucesters um he he had a great sense of failure even though he got a silver war badge and you know what had happened to him was obviously what happened to thousands of others he was demobbed in 1919 and by 1925, he was a sergeant at the town of Lydney in Gloucestershire. He was a senior policeman in the town. And at that time period, this was a significant social role as well as um, a practical one. He was asked to judge the flower show. He gave prizes at schools. You know, this was a prominent family in local life. However, he had become a very serious alcoholic and was monstrously in debt because all the money went on booze. Um, a quote from a family member, he was different when he'd been drinking. He wasn't a man, he was a monster, unquote. Um, Charles beat up his sons um, and sexually assaulted both his wife and his daughter. Charles died of a heart attack in 1936 and all the family's possessions had to be sold to pay his debts. And that's very clear and obvious similarities to modern case studies. Um, and I'll just give one quotation from a combat stress case study on their website. Um, alcohol really got a hold of me. My partner said I needed to get help after I lost it with her. And you can see that's that's practically the same voice speaking 100 years later. Interesting. With reference to Charles, whereabouts did you get all the evidence that you've gathered? What sort of a search sources were there for this? Um, in Charles's case, it's because he's my grandfather. Right, right. So it's actually, it has a, a real family connection, as I think it does for so many of us. Yes, I mean, obviously, um, this this was something which family members were, um, as I think family members are um, with um, veterans who are suffering with PTSD today, family members were extremely ashamed and humiliated by this, even though they had suffered. They, you know, Charles was dead, obviously, long before I was born, um, but they were very reluctant to talk about what had happened. Um, it was only gradually piecing things together. Now, your second case study was a Victoria Cross winner. Can you tell us about him? Yes, yeah, so this is very different. 
Um, this is Robert G, who was born in 1876 and enlisted with the Royal Fusiliers in 1883. Um, he was obviously a very gifted guy. By 1914, he was the regimental quartermaster sergeant and married with two daughters. Um, in 1914, not surprisingly, he was commissioned um, as a second lieutenant in the second Royal Fusiliers. Um, he was in Gallipoli in September 1915, now acting captain, and there was a horrendous flood um, and many um, officers and men were drowned or died of exposure. Um, there, there were only um, 10 officers and 84 other ranks left out of 22 officers and 661 other ranks they, who had become casualties. Um, so you see, that was, must, that's a bad experience in itself. On 1916, um, 1st of July, famous date, uh, yes, he took part in the first day of the Somme, seriously wounded and diagnosed with shell shock, um, but he managed to be awarded um, Military Cross for Distinguished Leadership. So he returned to France February 1917 and went on the staff of the 86th Brigade. In August, he managed to get wounded again. 30th of November is when he um, won his VC during Cam the Battle of Cambrai. Um, the Germans had captured brigade headquarters in an ammunition dump, and it's it's it really an incredible story. G was, had been taken prisoner. He killed his captor with his broken swagger stick. Then he single-handedly attacked a German machine gun post, shot eight Germans with two revolvers, captured the machine gun post, and in his citation, it is said he saved the brigade, if not the division. Um, G became a national hero and in 1921 was elected as an MP. However, privately, um, there were significant problems. Um, his, his wife's letters to a friend survive. Um, and in 1926, she wrote, his VC has led him into many scrapes with women, as you know, but the last was a friend of mine, you can guess, with pretty undies. All our savings were spent on her. He is on the continent and she has gone with him. The doctor says, the doctor says he couldn't help it, what he's done. His brain is wrong. He's booked berths traveling from Marseille to New Zealand, and she's traveling under the name Mrs. Craddock. But when they land, it will be Mr. and Mrs. G. Isn't that cruel? Um, so they actually went to Australia rather than New Zealand. And when they arrived, G told the Australian press that he'd been ordered by his doctor to take a long sea voyage following a severe mental breakdown. Um, and I mean, that's what he said. There, this, that's not the evidence from the English side, but that's what he said. In 1926, he bought a plot, large area of virgin land in Western Australia, um, and with Mrs. G, proposed to turn it into a farm, saying it was a good life for the English working man. At first, the life may appear rough and ready, but one soon shakes down to it. If a man is prepared to work hard, he'll acquire all the qualifications he needs in a year or so. Um, he was 53 and still in poor health from all his various injuries. Um, so it's, you know, also a huge undertaking. Um, the farm was never very successful. His wife had no idea where he was meanwhile and wrote repeatedly to the war office asking to be notified if he was dead, as if so she'd be entitled to a share of his pension. He only sent her £25 since he'd left for the continent. In 1934, he walked away from the land, now his farm completely penniless. And at some point, Mrs. Craddock vanished. And I very frustratingly, I haven't been able to discover her true identity. In 1956, um, Robert G. returned to Britain to take part in the Victoria Cross Centenary Review. And he remained there, dying in 1960. His wife died in the same year, but they, they never met again. And 
where, where was the documentary evidence for that? Because that is just an amazing story. Um, well, um, the I was very lucky because um, I happened to get into conversation with a friend of mine who's an archivist. Um, if I do an article about this, of course, it will have the full acknowledgement. But I'll just say she is an archivist. And it so happened that she her archive holds the letters from Mrs. G. And so she offered me the use of them. And, um, you know, that was just amazing um, to have this whole personal side of him opened up. And once I knew that this from the story from her point of view, I was then able to explore um, what happened in Australia through Australian archives. And tell us about your third and final subject, Mr. John Breeze. Yes, unfortunately, I know less about John Breeze than about the other two. Um, and it's not for lack of trying, I can say. He was a Welsh miner who, with many others, joined the Monmouthshire Regiment in 1914. And um, I'm sure anybody familiar with um, the history of Welsh mining in the Monmouthshire Regiment will be ahead of me here. In 1915, two battalions of the Monmouthshires joined the 171st Mining Company. And their job was, of course, to dig saps to set mines under German lines. Breeze, um, by now, was a sergeant and was mentioned in dispatches. And he won the, the DCM. However, of course, this was incredibly dangerous work, um, not only the dangers of mining, which are massive in themselves, but also of deliberate attack by Germans. Breeze was twice buried alive and witnessed the deaths of several close friends at close quarters. After the war, he returned to Abercam in Wales, no longer strong enough for colliery work. And obviously it was felt very important that he should be found a way of earning a living. And he was appointed as caretaker and instructor at the Kuncan Drill Hall near Abercorn. And now these drill halls had accommodation for the caretaker instructor and their family um, and a hall where obviously drill and so on would take place and an armory. Um, he certainly was a changed man. He having been um, sociable, outgoing and somebody who really enjoyed things like um, communal singing before the war, he was now withdrawn and um, silent and morose. On the 6th of January 1926, um, his wife had gone into Abercorn to visit her parents um, and Breeze with his eldest son was at the, um, the drill hall and he said to the son to go and pick his mother, go and meet his mother and walk her back. Um, when the son and wife arrived, Breeze came out and embraced her and told her not to go into the building. And then he hurried away into the darkness. So his son went inside and found that his father had shot um, his three little sisters aged eight, four and 18 months with a rifle from the armory. And the likeliest thing is that it's like the Second World War veteran I mentioned earlier in that in a state of confusion, he believed the noises the children were making were some sort of attack and he reacted in a way that he would have done during the war. He shot dead the source of the noise. Breeze um, that, that evening handed himself over to the police and he, the verdict was he was found uh, guilty of murder while temporarily insane. A very tragic story indeed. And looking at these sort of three case studies, what do you think we can learn from those sort of First World War veterans that might help us understand better the, the issue today? Well, I'd like to say first that while obviously nobody who served in the Great War forgot their experiences and many of those who served preferred not to discuss them, this doesn't mean that millions of people had undiagnosed PTSD. As I said earlier, contemporary sources think that it's only about 17% um, amongst combat veterans 
who suffer in this way. But even amongst today's veterans, there are those who find it really, really hard to admit they have a problem. They don't realize that the way they're behaving, their overindulgence in alcohol or in other forms of abuse, um, perhaps um, attacking their families, um, being very difficult to live with, um, drugs as well as alcohol, of course. Um, they the men can't, um, as I said, or sometimes women, but it is generally men, um, they can't see they've got a problem. And so their families are living in a, you know, trapped in a very, very difficult situation. Um, and they don't know where to turn if the man won't admit that he needs help. It's easy to see that in the 1920s, when mental health support was so much harder to find, just how difficult it must have been for servicemen and their families suffering um, in this way from undiagnosed trauma and its, and its um, consequences. And my final question is, where can people find out more about your research and these stories? Uh, well, I'm on the Western Front Association list of speakers with my three great war talks. But if anybody is interested in seeing my full range of historical talks, which covers other topics, then I'm on SpeakerNet Co UK or Public Speakers Corner Co UK. Francis, thank you very much for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.